Welcome to the Earthkeepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind. People who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earthkeepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and in this episode, we'll be talking to Randy Borman, a respected leader among the Kofan indigenous people of Ecuador. Randy was born at the headwaters of the Amazon. He grew up among the Kofan peoples, speaking their language and living life in the forest as any young Kofan does. However, he also learned American culture from his missionary parents and later pursued a Western university education before returning to his home and his people in Ecuador. Today, Randy is a respected leader among the Kofan and is also well-known internationally among global environmental advocates. His vision of leadership is inclusive and holistic. In his time as a Kofan chief, for example, he came to understand that his role was to serve the whole community, not just the Kofan people, but also every being in the ecology of which they are an integral part. I think one of the huge aha moments of my life was realizing that I wasn't chief of just a group of Kofans, humans. I was also the chief of thousands of macaws, hundreds of thousands of trees. All of this was part of my responsibility the wild pig herds, the fish, the spiritual beings that were there. All of this was part of my responsibility as I slowly assumed and slowly learned to take on the role that originally was involved in Adam's stewardship. And that all of these people who are coming alongside of me are also part of that relationship and can be part of that physical, spiritual, and social relationship, not just with each other, but with the world as a whole. This is what I think Creation Care ultimately is about. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Randy, I'm just wondering if you could give an introduction to yourself, talk about your situation in life, where you live, what you do, that sort of thing. I'm Randy Borman. I am the son of missionaries who came to Ecuador in the 1950s. And I was born here in the Amazon headwaters and was raised within two different cultures, the Kofan culture where my parents were working and the more or less American overseas missionary the third culture that gave me education and English and different views in life. But at the same time, growing up as a Kofan within the Kofan world of Amazonia in a culture that had adapted over hundreds of probably thousands of years to the Amazon rainforest. In terms of your positioning with the community, what's your role and how would you describe the way that your family lives with them? And the reason I ask that question is because uh, I've heard your story before and there's something really beautiful, I think, about the way your family and your children have integrated into the the life of the community, where that is actually truly home for you in every way. It's always a bit difficult to present this to 
people in the American culture because one of the things that my missionary upbringing and that third culture world of the overseas community gave me was the ability to present myself very much as just another American person with a, you know, a good academic background. But what is hard to communicate to people is that I also grew up as a Kofan, very, very completely as a Kofan. My parents took me out to the village of Dureno when I was probably only a couple of weeks old. Basically, I grew up within a world that it's largely vanished. The language remains intact. The, the culture is a derivative of the culture that it was then, but like all cultures, it's in a process of constant adaption. And part of that adaption, when I was early college years, I was that at the same time as I was trying to get an outside education, I was also facing, along with the rest of the Kofan people of our village of Dureno, we were facing the onslaught of the whole outside world. Uh, the oil companies had begun their exploration and uh, actually started doing the exploitation, actually. And we were experiencing pollution. We were experiencing roads coming into our territory. And all of a sudden, areas that we had never even had to think about as being our lands were all of a sudden under... A tremendous amount of pressure from colonists from other parts of the country that were pouring in. And within a very, very short period of time, we went from unlimited resources and a vast and inexhaustible ecosystem. When a chief died, it was traditional to just pull up stakes and kind of burn the village and go homestead a new site. It wasn't any big deal. The shift from unlimited resources to all of a sudden, being cornered in the middle of a growing colonization and a growing petroleum industry and a growing onslaught of the outside world was a trauma that is extremely difficult to describe. So starting in college years, I started working actively to try to rescue something from this in terms of land and a base for the culture. When I first started out, I wasn't thinking too much about the rest of the world. I wasn't thinking about the ecological importance of our forests. I was just thinking about them as important for our culture and for our way of life, and that we needed to regain as much as we could under a completely new legal structure that we had never had to deal with before, and trying to figure that out and trying to get that going. So starting this as an 18-year-old, one of my primary activities throughout my life has been recovering and legalizing Kofan territories and setting up models that work for other indigenous groups as well. Along with that, I've had various formal posts over the years within the Kofan nation, but I've also have had much more cultural, although informal, recognition as one of the major leaders of the Ecuadorian Kofan. I just know that my relationship to the land where I live was really formed uh, when I was a child and spending time in the woods at my grandparents' property. And I know that that, that relationship that developed uh, in my early years has a lot to do with what I'm doing now and with the fact that I advocate for the environment, for environmental justice as a primary activity, really. It's, it's a heart passion. So saying all that, I'm wondering if you could 
talk a bit about your childhood. I mean, typically, what was it like? What did you do with your time with your friends? Uh, you know, we were a hunting fishing culture. Uh, we depended tremendously on uh, the resources around us. Growing up with low events with poison darts and, uh, and spears as our primary weapons. But we were out there hunting and, and then fishnets made from uh, woven chambita. It's a palm fiber that we would then make our nets out of. Pretty much everything that we needed was coming from the forest directly. We had subsistence agriculture. We had plantain, bananas, and manioc as our primary subsistence crops. And then people planted wide range of fruits, um, corn, and other products as kind of a sides. We always joked that the Kofans have always liked their comfort. So a lot of time was spent in just building houses. The houses, most of our construction materials were running on about a five-year limit. And that was about as long as the river usually left us alone. Either the river would carve away our particular bank and uh, we'd have to build a new house after five years anyhow, or the river would leave us. So it was too long of a walk to the beach. So then you had to move your house again. So a lot of construction time. And then, of course, the hunting and the fishing for the kids, for us kids, we were out there with the blowguns very early on shooting birds and lizards. And then as we grew older, starting to get into the larger stuff, constant socializing, constant talking, listening to the older people tell stories of themselves. And in a, a culture where reading and writing did not exist prior to my parents' arrival, all of the information that was available was in the, actually in the heads of the living population. You didn't have the advantage of being able to write something down in a book and then have somebody look at your book after you were long dead. So information was important to constantly, constantly, constantly be trading information people to people. But also, we spent a lot of time swimming. That was one of the big, big Kofan child activities. You know, when I was out of vacation, I had to be at the mission school and learning to read and write and history and all the rest of that stuff. I decided that reading was a lot of fun. And so I read voraciously. And if my mom was a little bit too worried about me spending too much of my time reading and not doing outside things, I'd go hunting. Those are the two big activities for me. I love the fact that uh, your mother was worried that you might not be spending enough time hunting. <laughs> well, I don't think she was worried about the hunting. I think she wanted me to go play baseball or something. I, you know, oh, I see. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, she was a little bit worried about me spending all that time hunting. I mean, it was like, oh, you're spending so much time reading. You're just inside the house. Okay. I grab the blowgun and go. And uh, then she, oh, yeah, you're spending way too much time out there, you know. Well, you raise a very interesting question, actually. A lot of time uh, when folks, say, from the global north will come into a situation such as yours in Ecuador, oftentimes they'll enter the situation with an intent to to change things, to give things, to deliver products as it were. But but oftentimes we in those situations as as northerners don't allow ourselves to be affected and changed in turn. There's not a lot of reciprocity. And it sounds like actually that your family was quite open to being changed in terms of of the things that they did and, and how they lived, uh, even how they thought, I suppose, to some degree. Is that 
true? Is that a, a, a correct perception? Yeah, and I think one of the big things that a lot of people don't understand the tremendous importance of long-term relationship when you're doing any type of community development work. The modern way is a short-term missionary, an NGO with a three-year project, uh, foundation, USAID based around five-year project. One of the things that happens is that you don't get the time to really uh, integrate and to begin to enter into a change process, a process where both sides are changing and both sides are receiving the influence of the other. I think with my family, my parents were there for the long haul. By the time they got to Dureno, my dad had already been a missionary pilot in Peru for several years, and my mom had been a translator's helper in Mexico. They both came with quite a bit of knowledge of other cultures and other ways of life. And when they came to uh, live with the Cofans, you know, I, I think it's very valid to talk about God's leading and God's planning within our lives when we're open to that. And in their case, uh, the Cofans were a really good fit. You know, dad was a, a craftsman, uh, tremendously capable with his hands and a good teacher. And he came into a, a group of people who made their living as craftsmen. Their whole thing were hammocks and, uh, like I say, the constant building of the houses and all of this sort of stuff. And so in spite of the fact that he wasn't especially an outdoorsman, he was competent, but never hunting was definitely not his thing. Farming was definitely not his thing. Mom did most of that. But coming into a culture that valued very, very, very highly uh, ability with your hands, ability, the skill with uh, how you make a blowgun, how you make a hammock, how you make a fishnet, how you make a canoe, all of these things. And he fit in very well with that and learned a lot and taught a lot. My mom, likewise, her dad had died when she was quite young and living through the Depression in California, going back and forth, picking fruit and just living poor, living on the edge, and then going to Mexico, fitting right into that world there, and then coming down here and fitting into the Kofan world with her skills, her literacy skills, and she was the one who actually developed the Kofan alphabet and began the whole process of teaching people to read and write. But at the same time, a wife, a mother, very, very understandable to the Kofan people. As they stayed there, they became more and more aware of places where their worldview was not the same as the Kofan worldview. They were always very, very, very open to learning. Uh, sometimes kind of slaps you in the face. And they, they have the one situation where the old chief, very close friend of my dad's, comes over in the morning after taking the hallucinogen, Yahe. He was a noted game caller. He was one of the shamans who was noted for being able to call in wildlife of various types to, to the village or to be able to locate where it was. And he comes in and says, ah, that was a really, really good session last night. The pigs are going to be coming in probably this morning sometime to the village here. I'm going to go home and get some sleep, but uh, just be aware of it. And sure enough, about 10 o'clock, all of a sudden, this herd of 200 pigs comes marching through the village. These are white-lipped peccary. And, of course, everybody in the village who was still awake 
and it was out there hunting for the porch, getting, I guess you could call it porch pork. Uh, <laughs> they were all of a sudden being faced with a reality, you know, from a Western Christian worldview, where you pay lip service to a spiritual world, a spiritual reality. But you talk a lot about faith, and you talk a lot about things unseen, and you talk a lot about demons and angels, but you really don't have any very personal experience with most of it. And here, all of a sudden, they're being faced with not only a reality, a spiritual reality of these pigs coming into the village, they're also being faced with a real question. You know, is this demon? Is this angelic? What is it? The porch fork is really good eating. Should we be rejecting this as something of the devil? Where do we fit? How do we deal with this? And so the issues that they were facing as they developed and learned about other ways of life uh, reached into everything, not just the surface. So I'm wondering, uh, in that situation, it sounds like your parents' views on many things were changed, but probably it, it problematized and maybe complexified, to use that word, their faith a bit. I'm wondering if, you know, when you look back at, at your upbringing, how is your Christian faith fundamentally different, maybe from the faith that, that you would have grown up with had you grown up in, in the U.S.? One of the fundamental bases of Kofan understanding of the spiritual world is that it's really nothing more than just the extension of the physical world that we live in. And that the issue is about understanding for the word go that what we're perceiving with our five senses and what we're able to learn at a physical level is a, just an extremely small fraction of what's out there. And that when we start using other instruments, be they hallucinogens in the case of the chief, be they a microscope in the case of medicine, be they the Hubble looking at the cosmos, we as humans have the ability to develop instruments, various types of instruments, to be able to access certain parts of the world that exists. But even then, it's just such a small, 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 small percentage. I use the example fairly frequently, but the first time that Kofans ran into the microscope, I was sitting there, I was probably eight years old, something like that. And everybody going over and looking into the microscope and looking at the, the samples of the water and seeing the little things moving around in the water and, and the doctor, you know, condescendingly saying, well, these are what making you have your tummy problems. And everybody was enjoying the experience. Everybody was excited about being able to see these wee little beasties, nobody was surprised. It was, oh, this is great. We finally found an instrument that is showing us what these things look like. You know, we knew that there had to be something, but we didn't know what it was. And now we've got an instrument that's showing us. I, I think that probably is the greatest gift that comes from my Kofan upbringing to my view of Christianity. This allows me to integrate things like the universe. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about 
how many million galaxies? You know, we're, we're not even tapping into any knowledge of how big this is. And as Christians, we're claiming that we have a relationship with the God who put this all into action. The biggest gift, like I say, from the Kofan world has been to understand that God is so much bigger. What is around us is so much bigger, so much faster. You know, the average Kofan isn't thinking in terms of millions of galaxies and probably millions of universes superimposed upon each other. The average Kofan is content to worry about the unseen world around him or her, uh, its spiritual ramifications, its health ramifications, its security ramifications, all of this. Uh, but the, the seeds for that are coming directly from the Kofan world. And it sounds as if, by implication, the millions of galaxies would not be a surprising thing to a Kofan person. No, it's like, we can't understand it. Boy, this is blowing my mind, but it's not a surprise. There's a comfortability or at least a, a capacity to sit with, with awe and, and wonder and, uh, and the unknown. Another example that might be a little more controversial to many modern Western Christian hearers, but uh, goes right to the point. Three of my guys that from my village went up to a guides course and came back and we were talking, sitting in the front room and talking about the, the course and how it had been and what had, what had been going on and the whole thing and what they'd been teaching her. And Lorenzo says, you know, there was one guy that I did not understand what was going on. Uh, maybe you can clue me in. He was a biology professor and he was just going on and on about the fact that Christians say that the whole world was created in six days and that this could possibly be true and that for that reason, God didn't exist. And we're trying to figure out what, was, what he was going on and on about. You know, so then I, you know, tried in Kofan to explain a little bit about the creationism, you know. All of a sudden, the three guys turn around to each other and they start laughing. I said, okay, yeah, what a guy turns around to me and he says, you mean there's people actually out there who think that God's days are the same as ours? From the Kofan viewpoint, to think that God would be bound by our 24-hour days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God made the world in six days. There's no problem with that, but they were God's days, not ours. Probably the Kofan culture was a lot closer to what the nomadic Hebrew culture that received the creation story and that then passed it down to us. So probably if we cornered Abraham on the whole story, he would react in the same way that the the Kofans did. You know, are, are they crazy? Do they think that we're talking about our days? And it wasn't until the urbanization of the Hebrew nation that people began to try to focus God down to much more manageable, much more human level where 24-hour days were assumed. Randy Borman is driven by his love for the Kofan people and for the whole community of creation that is the Ecuadorian rainforest. 
At the same time, though, he holds a vision of community that encompasses the whole earth. While his life is devoted to helping different indigenous groups in his region to become earth keepers in their local contexts, he sees his work as a critical part of earth care on a global level as well. Randy's vision of community embraces the whole earth, and his message challenges every person to understand their part in caring for it. You had uh, made a comment earlier about uh, community development and some of the important dynamics of that. In my teaching of community development, I often find that there is a tension uh, between concerns for the environment, for earth care sometimes, and the concern for human flourishing and, and human well-being. And oftentimes, community developers will feel a tension in knowing how to, to manage those two ends of the spectrum. I'm wondering, in your work with community development, but also in your work with the environment, what does that balance look like? Or is, in fact, there even a dichotomy? I'm coming from a worldview that's developed from a lot of different sources. Obviously, I'm not I'm not a pure Kofan in my worldview. I'm not a pure Western Christian in my worldview. I'm not a pure biologist in my worldview. I'm a, a mixture of all sorts of things. But the way that I would handle this question, first of all, there is a biological reality, and we've outstripped our biological reality. You know, when we're looking at population uh, management, we're looking at, you know, for instance, we have uh, a project that we've been doing for 30 odd years now, uh, working with the Amazon River turtle and trying to bring back the Amazon River turtle to populations that allow it to be used for uh, food and resources. And it was extremely important historically for most of the Amazonian tribes. And the equation that we use is that each turtle needs to reproduce its own genetic formula once during its life. So a female needs to have two surviving offspring at the end of the day. And all the rest are extras. And I mean, this is just a biological, you know, so we're talking about 600 eggs uh, during a lifetime. Uh, the If the population is stable and is in good shape, that means that 598 of those eggs are available for food for humans or for animals or, uh, you know, that's, that's the type of equation that we work with in biology. Humans, we've obviously gone way, way, way overboard on our, biological imperative. So a huge problem that we're dealing with, I mean, the basic problem we're dealing with is really ultimately population. Meanwhile, we're dealing with natural world that is constantly being reduced. And in the case of the Kofans, we've been faced with the reality of going from a home range, to use the proper biological term, because we weren't actively defending the territory, of several million hectares, figure a hectare is two and a half acres, so several million, million <laughs> acres of territory down to a very, very, very small reduced area that now that we do consider a territory and that we do defend actively. And that means that all of the resources that we're taking out of that world need to be managed very, very heavily by us. And we need to take a much more active role in the day-to-day -day management of that natural, in quotation, 
Mark's world that's around us. And this is where our management of turtles becomes very, very important. As we become active managers, we also are taking on the role of stewards that I think was originally contemplated in uh, God's mandate to Adam. This is where creation care becomes an incredibly important part of our worldview as Christians. And I'm not speaking of Western Christians or Kofan Christians or anything. It's just plain old Christians. Our stewardship of our world at both the small level and the larger level becomes more and more increasingly important. Starting a couple of decades ago, I became increasingly aware that we're not talking about just preserving and conserving and managing our forests for ourselves. We're talking about uh, maintaining these places for the benefit of the rest of the world. And a huge part of my activity in the last few years has been trying to wake the rest of the world up to the need for these forests. You know, as we're going into climate change, you know, we need these places. We need to be dealing with them. So it goes past the immediate community development issue of how to balance community development with management and conservation, but then goes past that to, I guess we could call it world development. And we've got to do it quick because I mean, we're already feeling the tremendous impacts of the global climate change. And we've got to develop a consciousness at a world level, not just at a community level, that we need these forests and we need these natural areas. And human interests, if we want all of us to survive, I go over the top of local felt needs just because the local farmer needs to grow cows to be able to survive on a global level, we can't present that as part of our community development program anymore because the whole world needs those forests more than the individual needs the cow. I want to actually address both of those levels, the the local and the global, but take one at a time. Could you talk about, in terms of the history of the COFAN in particular, how has earth care, creation care, actually been instrumental in cultural healing, in in, uh, societal strength? I mean, what is the relationship between the development of of the Kofan Nation and caring for the environment? The seeds for living close to nature, to being stewards of nature, are much easier to access and much easier to grow within a close relationship, a pragmatic relationship that most of the indigenous peoples have had throughout history. So blowing, changing my metaphor a little bit, but blowing the coals into a fire of creation care is easier when you're coming from directly from an indigenous worldview than it is when you're coming from an urban worldview. And so the, the whole deal is getting those seeds and making them grow and developing the next stage, which is the management of that world. But going from that, where you're already doing management kind of inadvertently, just for pragmatic reasons, and switching that over to a situation where you're now able to do it consciously and take your stewardship to a second level, which is what we're doing with the turtles and with a lot of other wildlife as well, is something that an indigenous world can adapt to very, very quickly. 
You told me before that the introduction of a more deliberate, intentional mode of care for the environment was responsible or an integral part, really, of the revitalization of the Kofan people in terms of uh, economic development, cultural development. How would you describe that dynamic? I mean, what actually happened in that change over into the more deliberate earth care modality? You know, when you're looking at what's important to a culture, language is the description of a culture. And my thumbnail definition of a culture is a group of people's social, physical, and spiritual involvements with their environment. The language is the description of it, so of those relationships. And so when we're looking at a culture, the first thing we need to do is go look at the language and find out what they talk about. And in the case of Kofan, over half the language is dedicated to the physical environment and its spiritual and social ramifications. If you take a Kofan out of the rainforest, there's still 50% of the vocabulary, 48% of the vocabulary that still remains intact. We can still talk about uh, the taste of the food, marriage relationship, and there's a lot of things that we can still talk about. But we're losing over half of our language. That means we're losing over half of our, our culture. So recognizing that and then saying, okay, the first thing that we need to do if we're going to keep our culture going is we're going to have to have that forest. We're going to have to maintain that relationship with our forest. And so then the next stage is recognizing that our forest, as we know it, is finite. It's not the infinite thing that we knew of in the 60s. Now it's finite. And we're going to have to take an active role in the management of it. The third thing is to try to find economic ways of making that relationship go translate into our relationship with the urban world around us. And that's hard. That's something that we're still in the process of doing. I believe firmly that ultimately we're talking about a commodity, if you want to put it that way. We're talking about a necessity, really, for the rest of the world, and it needs to be treated as such. The environmental services that our forest is providing need to be paid for by the users in the same way that when you turn on the tap, your water tap, and a little meter outside meters up your bill, and you then help pay for the process of getting that water to your house. Uh, In the same way, we need to figure out some way that the environmental services that are a million acres of rainforest that that Kofan's presently govern and manage, those environmental services that that forest is providing to the rest of the world needs to be in some way paid for. That doesn't happen yet, isn't happening. And because it isn't, the Kofan people continue to be, along with the majority of the indigenous people who are right now in, in some form of charge of over 70% of the world's remaining wild wilderness areas, continue to be some of the poorest people in the world. So economically, it's been a real struggle and continues to be a struggle. In terms of small-scale things that we've been able to do, we do do ecotourism, you know, bringing people down to, to visit to provide some economic sustainability to the forest. Along with it, it provides another very, very important thing because people who are obviously from economic and educational background of, you know, being the elite are coming down and saying, oh, wow, isn't it wonderful that you have this forest? So that's been an important feedback for Kofans and other indigenous groups across the globe that 
they are at least getting verbal assurance that what they're doing is right. Because the pressure from the oil companies, from the miners, from the agriculturalists is all to, oh, you lazy indigenous people, cut down your rainforests and uh, turn them into productive fields. Same thing that indigenous people, like I said, across the globe have faced and are facing. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about uh, this idea that everyone needs to pay attention to their need for the forest, the rainforest in particular, for example, you're really thinking on a, a global community scale that quite honestly, it feels like the world is moving away from, if anything. There's a lot more focus on uh, on nations, for example, or even on the individual and very little thought given to the community of the earth, the global community. And I'm wondering if you have any hope for that to change or would even know how to go about helping people to think in, in the broader global terms. Let me give a couple of examples here. One, $119 billion for the water holder backer around uh, New York City is the figure that I just got yesterday from my son. I may be off a decimal point low, not high. Let's call it $119 billion that is being put into forestalling effects of climate change. I can't remember the exact figure, but over $100 billion in damages in the New Orleans hurricane. Billions and billions and billions of dollars, trillions of dollars in damages from the leading edge of climate change. Each one of those events, if you lose a million more acres of rainforest, each one of those things will be more expensive. So the money's out there. The money's out there when you have to repair the damage from having lost a million acres of rainforest. You put up a billion dollars, you put up $10 billion without even thinking about it. Why not prevent it? Right now, the Kofan Nation is very, very small. There's about 1,400 people, Kofan speakers in Ecuador right at the moment, and that's it. They are controlling and managing an area of about the size of the state of Delaware, a little bit bigger than Delaware, with $10 million in a a trust fund. They would have enough income yearly to be able to take care of that million acres. The rest of the world wouldn't have to worry about it. It's a done deal. They're taking care of it. They're managing it for us. And at least that amount of carbon will be taken out of the atmosphere every year. That amount of rainfall control will be happening every year. That amount of pressure on the environment will, the negative impacts of losing that will not be there. We'll have the climate control, we'll have the all of the environmental services of that area, and we're guaranteed for the future. Right now, they want it for free. The rest of the world wants it for free. The problem with it is that 10 years down the line, there's no money, there's no jobs, there's no incentive. And the rest of the world comes in and says, hey, you know, what we really want from you right now is that oil that's underneath your land. What we really want from you is to grow cattle on the top. What we really want from you is cheap chocolate, keep that price of chocolate down so that people can afford it. Yeah, that's what we really want from you. We don't want those environmental services and we don't care. 
but we're more than willing to pay the insurance premiums that are necessary to be able to pay for the disasters that are going to get increasingly strong as we turn that into cheap chocolate. So it sounds like in some ways you're being very practical, as many people are trying to to be, in terms of framing the necessity of environment care in economic terms, because that's what could potentially make sense to people. People tend to think in, in terms of, of dollars, when things are boiled down to those numbers, it, it makes more sense. I think you're also making the point that even though that potential for understanding is there, that people actually don't understand, right? As you say, they're willing to spend money in a way that's not sustainable, that will just uh, mean repeated costs versus investing in more preventative measures. Climate control, creation care is about us taking care of the place where we're trying to live. And to me, it's an example, one of many examples of God's love for us, that he tries to instill this ethic in our worldview, in our religious structure, in our spiritual outlook, this whole idea of creation care. But ultimately, it's his love for us, his wanting us to survive and to make good is the reason why he's doing it. You raise a really interesting point. I completely understand your argument that economics may be the language that compels people in the end to start making better decisions. But the idealist in me hopes that people will think more along the lines of what you've just said, that the fact is it's a good thing to care for the earth. We should be people who actually care we acknowledge that it is about us and our ultimate well-being, but it's also about creation. It's about respect for the earth that God has given us. Do you think that there actually is any possibility that Christians could make, make that transition in terms of thinking, in terms of these, these, these higher values? Because as you know, a good part of the, the Christian world to be generous probably does not pay attention to matters of earth care or environmental justice, but there are parts of the church that uh, actively resist it, resist accepting some of the realities of climate change, for example. When you look at the church and the future of the church globally, do you have hope that there could be this, this change of heart, this change of perspective that could even ultimately help lead the way in a, a different relationship between the global community and, uh, and, and creation. I was extremely, extremely upset and, and uh, disappointed that the Western Christian Church did not take leadership of the Green Movement. I have been extremely, extremely disappointed that the Western Christian Church has not taken a leadership role in and an excited leadership role in understanding what science has been teaching us. So in the, the community of people that Circlewood hopes to, to gather, for the people who listen to this podcast, Stephen, I believe that they, they want to change uh, and they want to help enact change. And part of that is helping themselves and helping their communities to think differently to have a broader vision for what it means. To 
acts of faith, as acts of worship, even, if you will. What do you say to those people in terms of things they might do to actually make a difference, either make a difference in their own worldview or in influencing the world around them? I think there's a whole lot of things that can happen. One of the things that can happen is just in your own lifestyle. Really go through and try to understand how your lifestyle affects the environment. Is your love for hamburger, driving deforestation in the Amazon for cheap beef? Look at where things are coming from, how they're getting to you, and make decisions based on how those things are affecting your environment and your globe. These are networks that go across the globe and where we do have to make decisions. We do have to say, okay, this I'm not going to be able to live without. This I will be able to live without. And this I'm going to try to find a source that is less destructive to my environment. So that's a first level. A second level is to go proactive and try actively to think about things like carbon sequestration. If I'm going to produce this much carbon, given my lifestyle, given the technology that accompanies my lifestyle, how can I go about offsetting that? What do I need to do to offset that? And this is where I've had high hopes for the modern ease with which we can work with computers and communications and all the rest across the globe, where I've had high hopes of getting links, more direct links between people who are concerned and places that can offset their concerns. I think now, given the internet, given the ease of communication, this is a much easier jump to start talking about environmental co-ops where you have a group who provides economic support, a group who provides on-the-ground management, cofans, a group who provides intermediary, the communications, the, the legal, this type of support, but that operate as units. So we've got a cofan co-op where group of individuals are able to buy in to become partners in the work of the Kofans within a million acres of rainforest. Next door, we've got the Sequoia Quechua. They've got another big block. So we've got a group of people who are buying into their co-op. And this is all possible now. I think this is something that is ready to be done. It seems to me that a difference in this approach that you are describing is a more engaged, involved, aware approach, basically a, a, the co-op that you describe, you could potentially simply send out the check. But it sounds as if the co-op invites a, a different sort of investment and engagement, such that you know where the money is going, you actually understand the application and implication of that money, and maybe more importantly, there's relationship involved. So you know the other people in this cooperative arrangement, you know the roles that they're playing, but perhaps you also know their hearts. You understand why they are playing their part. It just seems that you're introducing or proposing rather a, a dimension of community and relationship on a global scale that to me sounds fundamentally different. One of the big things that goes with the turf of urbanization is that you distance yourself from that natural world. Your contact with that natural world becomes more and more artificial. And it's harder and harder to understand the human in relationship with that 
natural world. That's something we want to bridge. We want to get that urban world to be able to, even at a distance, understand that relationship and switch back from a 24-hour human day to a recognition that God's days can be whatever he wants them to be. Give back the sovereignty that is implicit in a relationship with an environment that's bigger than me. And it's so easy for us to understand our relationship with our environment top down, that we're the outside element that needs to be, uh, that somehow is condescendingly taking care of an environment that we're really supposed to be part of. The cooperative idea, the idea of having people from the urban world, people from the technical world, people from the biological world, people from the indigenous world, all working together with a common goal of maintaining an environment and taking care of creation in a very real way. We've been talking with Randy Borman, conservationist and environmental advocate. If you would like to support the work of Kofan Earthkeepers in Ecuador, you'll find a link to the Kofan Survival Fund in this episode's notes section. And please note that Randy's dream of a co-op approach to carbon offsetting is still just an idea. If you or someone you know would be interested in further conversation about putting such a plan into action, we would love to be in conversation with you. Please send an email with your ideas and questions to podcast at circlewood.online. Earthkeepers Podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. We invite you to support us by becoming a subscriber. You can help us reach more people with our message by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And please, share Earthkeepers podcast with anyone you know who seeks a better relationship to the Earth. This podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to cultivate transformative communities that love and care for all creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online or write to us at podcast at circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Tinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast podcast.